Well, this week we are starting, beginning a new series in the book of Ephesians. So we've been journeying through Galatians the last six weeks. And if you have your Bible, either on your portable device or um, good old-fashioned paper, feel free to pull that out and we can turn to chapter 1 is where we're going to start. The letter of Ephesians was written as basically a survival guide for believers on how to not only survive but thrive in a culture that was very hostile toward the, the ways and teachings of Jesus. Um, does anybody own a survival guide of any type? No one? All right. Oh, okay. I see that, that's, uh, that witness there. A survival guide, here's what a basic survival guide looks like. This is the pocket edition, um, and this is like if you go camping, if you're going to go exploring in the wilderness, this is a guide you want to have in your book or in your, your pocket because in the unlikely event that you happen to be stranded in the middle of nowhere, this guide will show you basic things like which nuts and berries are safe to eat and how to, how to safely filter water in the wild, which is not a problem in Arizona because we don't have much. Um, or, you know, it'll show you how to start a fire with sticks. Um, this week, I, uh, I could have used one of these, actually, a few years ago. I was hiking up in the mountains and came across a wildlife. <laughs> it was a mountain lion. Um, I was out by myself, which is a good thing to do. I didn't tell anyone where I was going, which is a good thing to do. I also <laughs> didn't have cell phone reception, so it was a triple win here. And I see this mountain lion before he sees me, and my first thought is, what is a cat doing way up here, <laughs> right? My second thought was, that's a big cat. <laughs> and my third thought that was almost simultaneous with the first and second was, I have no idea what to do in this situation. And so I noticed that he hadn't yet seen me, and so I thought maybe if I get the drop out on him, he would get scared and run away. So, so I clap my hands, and he goes down into pounce mode. I'm like, well, I'm already committed now, so I just keep clapping and walking toward him like this, and I think he was just confused and ran off. Um, I could have used a guide maybe like this. If you encounter a mountain lion, face lion, back away slowly, be large, shout, offer any handy small children, run, run away. <laughs> No, I do not condone this activity. Um, uh, there's a few other survival guides that I found online this week while looking. Did you know that there is a Black Friday survival guide? You can know how to shop, how to get the best deals, whatever. There is a toddler survival guide, and all the parents said amen. There is a zombie survival guide, because you never know when a zombie apocalypse might break out. You got to be ready. There is a blind date survival guide for all those things you don't see coming. And in case none of these other survival guides admit it, there, get what you need, there is a how to survive anything guide. <laughs> so back to Ephesians. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey on the west coast, west side. Um, and it was a region that was very uh, commercial and cosmopolitan in its day. And it was very, there were a lot of people coming and going all the time, and it was very pagan also. And so they were not only resistant to, but almost hostile toward uh, the teachings and the message of Jesus. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this, or he planted the church in Ephesus, and he was the lead pastor there for two and a half years. He then embarked on other missionary journeys. He finds himself sitting in Rome in prison, which was not uncommon for Paul. It's one of his favorite activities, apparently, because he lands in it all the time. And he's writing this letter back to the church in Ephesus, saying, okay, I remember the culture that you're in, and this is basically a condensed guide 
on how to not only survive, but how to thrive when you're in the midst of opposition, persecution. And so this morning, as we look at this, I would like us to hopefully over the next few weeks contextualize this for ourselves. How do we, as the people of God, not only survive, but thrive in the culture in which we have been placed? So, let's see. So let's kick off in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to, so we got from Paul to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul loves to use this phrase, grace and peace, in, in a lot of his writings, and it uh, kind of reemphasizes a thought we talked about in the book of Acts last fall. And grace is the traditional uh, Greek greeting for hello, and peace is, was kind of the traditional Hebrew greeting, peace or shalom. And so when Paul uses both of these, saying grace and peace to the church, he is reaffirming that in the church, in the new covenant, there is now no Greek, nor Jew, no slave, nor free, no male, nor female, for we are all one in this body of Christ. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How many spiritual blessings? Every. That's right. I love this. So, but it's in the heavenly realms. Well, what are the heavenly realms? Um, because it's apparent when we read that the heavenly realms are not necessarily heaven proper because we see throughout the book of Ephesians and in fact the New Testament that in the heavenly realms there is evil powers at play and there are none in heaven. We also see that it's not necessarily on earth because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's some other realm or reality. We also see that it's not just in the future because as we'll see in a few weeks in chapter 6 um, that we battle now in the with principalities of darkness in these spiritual realms. So the heavenly realms are the spiritual dimension in which God and all spiritual powers are dwelling. Um, for your information, I crossed out about 80% of the notes I had today. So um, we're going we're gonna to skip through here. Let's talk about the point. <laughs> the point um, if, of these different dimensions that God has, these heavenly realms are... It's the place where we have already been blessed, as we just read in verse 3. The heavenly realms are where Jesus has been enthroned forever over all evil powers, as we'll see in verse 20. It is the place where we have already been raised to be seated with Christ, where we'll see next week in chapter 2. And it's the place where we stand firm against spiritual assaults that we'll see in chapter 6. So these blessings that Paul is speaking about are not just the trivial and temporary trinkets of things like money, property, fame, or in Paul's case, it's not even being released from prison. Your condition does not dictate how blessed you really are. And so, but it is actually the eternal treasures of personal reconciliation which God, with God, which we experience in this particular dimension. And because it is not a dimension or a place, a kingdom of this world, is that it runs independently of our uh, circumstances. On to verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, for what? To be holy and blameless in his sight. I love that Paul's words here. It says, what did he choose us for? It wasn't just to get into heaven. He chose us to be holy and blameless. In his sight, last week, Pastor Kurt talked about the similarities in the words sin and holiness and how they both separate us from something. And sin separates us from God, separates us from other people, ultimately leads to a place of isolation, whereas holiness 
It separates us, sets us aside from the things of this world to be useful to the master. And he used the picture of breaking a horse, and it's not until a horse is broken that he can really be made useful to its master. And in the same way, God, through his great love, leads us to a place of brokenness so that he can raise us up to use us for his divine purpose through us in the world. Verse 5, in love... He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Some of you, if you've grown up in like the Nazarene, Wesleyan, uh, Arminian view, that word predestination, you may have just been like, ooh, why did he have to say that? <laughs> you know, but it's in there. It's in the Bible, and it appears not only in Ephesians, but it appears throughout the New Testament. And predestination is this idea, basically, that pre meaning before and destination, that God has already decided, ultimately, your destination or destiny, okay? And so we're going to explore this word for just a moment this morning because I believe our understanding um, of it has significant ramifications, right? And you say, what does it really matter what we believe about this? Well, I would ask this, think of someone that you love. Maybe it's a spouse or a sibling or a child or a friend. Ultimately, their eternal fate rests in what God really says in his word about who is saved and who is lost. And so we're going to look at this for a moment today. And to do that, we're going to look um, into something called theology. Theology is a church word that just means the study of God. And a theologian then would be someone who studies God. So... Um, we're going to dig into this. With, under the, the big letters of theology, there's a smaller set of theology called salvation theology. And so salvation theology are studying words that are... Oh, some of you are already zoning out. Okay, we are... <laughs> we're prepping for back to school, right? <laughs> some of you are like, I left school 400 years ago and I don't want to look back. Um, well, we're going to go to school just a little bit this morning because I believe it's so crucial. <laughs> um, <laughs> So salvation theology is a subset of theology where we study matters specifically pertaining to salvation. And it covers a range of topics including the sovereignty of God, man's free will, total depravity, irresistible grace, predestination, and so on and so on. Um, it's a deep topic. Dr. Dan, who will be sharing with us next week, he once taught a 65-part class spanning two and a half years on this topic, and it was basically a brief overview and so you could spend a lifetime, you could really spend a lifetime studying and knowing this. And, and my task today is to see how far we can get in 10 minutes. And so frame of context, before we get into this, there's going to be a lot that is left out. And this may open up some questions that will require further exploration on your part. For example, to really understand the idea of predestination, we need to resolve the apparent conflict between the sovereignty of God and man's free will. We're not today. <laughs> so you can live with that tension as we go on and study a few other things here. There, <laughs> there is a system of belief held by many Christians today that subscribe to something that's called election. An election, or as we may call in our, our tradition, um, double predestination, is this idea that from the foundations of the earth that God already predestined who would be saved and who would be lost, who would go to heaven, who would ultimately go to hell. Um, and a lot of this background in this, what I'm going to call the classical Reformed tradition, 
they, over the last few hundred years, this tradition has been influenced heavily by um, things like Princeton theology in the U.S. and Scottish realism, things that, that put a heavier context on what is revealed knowledge. What has God revealed clearly in knowledge? What is most plainly understood? And, but sometimes that comes at the cost of what I would call biblical context. Okay, so in other words, it's this idea that, well, the Bible, it says in our language what we need it to say, and we read it at face value, and God interprets it in our heart, and I believe Scripture is incredibly multidimensional, and yes, that God speaks to us at face value, but I also just am so convicted that when we are talking about potentially the fate of all humanity, it's worth digging a little deeper and exploring, and so... Before we start, I want to talk about why context is important, and to use that, I'm going to share a passage from a popular book. Let's see if you can figure out what book this is. To think that when I first met you, I thought you were cruel and bloodthirsty. When he recovered from his emotion, he spoke again. Why did you do all this for me, he asked. I don't deserve it. I've never done anything for you. Does anyone know what book this is from? It's on page 164. <laughs> Give you a hint. <laughs> the shack doesn't have that many pages, probably. <laughs> um, so what do we see from this passage? Because we can infer a few things. You know, we can see that someone is emotional. We see an apparent act of kindness was done, but we don't necessarily know the names of either who is speaking or who is being spoken to that was once thought to be cruel and bloodthirsty. Now we're going to add a little bit of context. We're going to add the rest of the paragraph that surrounds this passage and reread it, and let's see if it makes a little more sense. Charlotte stopped. A moment later, a tear came to Wilbur's eye. Oh, Charlotte, he said, to think that when I first met you, I thought you were cruel and bloodthirsty. When he recovered from his emotion, he spoke again. Why did you do all this for me, he asked. I don't deserve it. I've never done anything for you. You have been my friend, replied Charlotte. That in itself is a tremendous thing. I wove my webs for you because I liked you. Now who knows what book it's from? Charlotte's Web, yeah. Um, and so by, isn't it, by adding a little bit of context just surrounding this passage, we now know not only the names, but for those of us who have read the book before or seen the movie, because who needs books when you have the movies, right? Um, but now you have the full context of what's actually being said because you've read the entire book. And so scripture is the same way. We find meaning in a passage because of the passages that surround it. And ultimately, we get a picture of individual passages and the paragraph when we've read the entire book. So, biblical context is basically this. When we read scripture, we want to identify four, maybe five things. First is who wrote this. Um, so we know in the example of Ephesians here, we know that the Apostle Paul is writing it. Paul formerly Saul. He was very dedicated Jew. He persecuted Christians. Then he got converted on the road to Damascus, and now he dedicated his life to basically teaching that which he once sought to destroy, as we read in Galatians 1 last month. So Paul, he also, we know he's sitting in prison. We know that he was the lead pastor at this church for two and a half years. So that's a little bit about the, the author. The second thing we need to consider when reading or interpreting scripture is who is this written to? Who is the audience? So we know that Ephesus was a very commercial, very pagan city. Uh, and there's a lot of cultural things that we don't fully understand in our day unless you've been a Hebrew biblical studies major, potentially. Um, but even still, you're missing something that you don't get when you're living in the culture like we understand our culture today. Um, so we know... 
who it was written to, we know the challenges they were facing, and because of that, the words that were written had specific impl implications, which is number three. We need to identify what would they, the audience, have heard and understood from this. And so when Paul is writing specific things, he's like, this is for you. And this letter, by the way, wasn't written, it was written to the church in Ephesus, but a lot think because it didn't have specific connotation that it may have been circled around a lot of the churches in that region of Western Turkey. Um, the fourth thing then we ask is, what does this mean to me today? So we understand who wrote it, who we wrote it to, what they would have understood in their context. Now we can apply it to our context, and, and what do we get out of this? What do we learn from this today? The other thing that um, I think often helps when interpreting Scripture is looking at the type of literature that the book is. So we know that Ephesians is an instructional letter, and so we're walking through it as a survival book, survival guide. Um, but there are other books in Scripture. How many books are in the Bible total? 66, written by how many authors? Multiple. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. Um, <laughs> and so there's different authors, there's different types of literature. There are books that are poetry. There are books that are historical chronology. There are books that are instructional letters. Okay, and so you, you wouldn't read a phone book the same way that you read a comic book. So the type of literature that you're reading does make a difference in how we look at these other four things. So back to predestination. Verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 11. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Well, as Paul stuttering, he just basically said the exact same thing twice. Well, as we see from Paul's other writings, when he says something twice, he's like, don't miss this. Okay? Like where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. It's like, I don't want you to miss what's going on here. Now, again, before we move on, I want to reaffirm that... Christian orthodoxy is a pretty wide net, okay? And so whether you were raised in a Reformed background, whether you were raised in a Wesleyan-Arminian background, or whether you were raised in neither, this morning I hope that we can maybe just for a moment um, look through maybe fresh lenses. I feel like when we read the Bible through blue glasses, everything appears to be blue. And when we read the Bible through red glasses, everything appears to be red. But this morning, if we can, to the best of our ability... Let's remove the glasses, and let's look at just some of the text, okay? Um, so all salvation theology hinges on something called the book of life. This is regardless of the background that you're on. This is what is kind of universally subscribed to within Christianity and in Judaism. The book of life is the book in which God records the names of every person that is destined for heaven, um, it appears throughout the Bible explicitly at least 14 times, six in the Old Testament, eight in the New Testament. And the, the general idea or concept comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. So in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, um, the apostle John is talking about the judgment of the dead. So this is the unbeliever's judgment. And what he says in verse 15 is that anyone whose name, was, so this is the judgment day at the end, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so when you die, it's kind of like going to 
that party that has a guest list or the club or whatever you go to. Um, but it's like going somewhere that has a guest list and you see everyone's lined up at the door and they're waiting in line, the nice little, you know, swoopy things and people try to cut in based on who they know. I know that guy, come on up. Um, but ultimately when you get to the, to the door, there's someone up front checking a list. And he's looking to see, like, are you on the list or not? And, oh, yeah, you're on the list? Come on in. Oh, you're not on the list? Sorry, you can't come in. That's kind of the picture of what's happening here with the book of life. Um, so here is what the, the typical churchgoer believes about the book of life if you were raised in kind of the Wesleyan Arminian. Now, this is not necessarily theologians. So if you've been to seminary, if you've done a lot of study on this topic, this is not necessarily you. I'm not trying to generalize everyone, but um, this is what the typical churchgoer that was raised in, in our tradition probably believes about the book of life. Number one, when a person becomes a believer, their name is written in the book of life. Number two, if you backslide, your name is removed from the book. And so we have this picture that when you say the sinner's prayer that Jesus is like, oh, Josiah, okay, I'm going to write Josiah's name in the book of life. And then, oh, oh, well, I, 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 I did accept Christ, but now I've kind of got distracted, and now I've kind of walked away from God, and I'm living according to the things of this world. And we, we have this other simultaneous picture. Jesus is like, oh, okay, I'm going to erase that, you know, because it looks like apparently he wasn't really saved or something. And so we get this picture of, like, writing in and erasing, and Jesus has nothing better to do with his time than to, to you know, figure out what's going on with our lives. And in our tradition, we, haven't have, we even have great songs that say stuff like that. There's a new name in, written down in glory. Oh, it's mine. Oh, it's mine. The problem is, as we're going to see in a few moments, is that that's not biblically supported. And at the same time, we used to joke when I was a kid. We'd go to camp every summer, and we used to joke, like, oh, I got saved again. Because it's kind of this idea. You go to camp, you get saved, you come home, live like whatever you want the rest of the year. You go back to camp, you get saved again. You know, it's like that sort of thing. And it's, no, you can't lose your salvation like you lose your car keys. Okay? <laughs> because Jesus says in, uh, in John chapter 10, actually, he's, there's this picture of the shepherd, and we are the sheep, and no one can snatch us out of the shepherd's hands. Okay? So there's this security to it. Um, now, is it possible to walk away from the faith? We'll talk about that in a, in a little bit if we get to it. So, that's the typical Armenian. <laughs> now, the typical Reformed, <laughs> the typical reformed um, view, then, of the Book of Life would be this. That only those who have been predestined to be saved ever have their names in the Book of Life. So, this is the idea that from the foundations of the earth, God and his sovereignty already had chosen who was ultimately going to be lost and who was ultimately going to be saved. Second, um, they would believe that those whose names are written in the book of life were written in the book before the foundations of the earth, that they are predestined to salvation, that they are eternally secure no matter what they do, and they cannot fall away from the faith. This concept is called Perseverance of the Saints, and it's part of TULIP, which is a five-letter acronym representing kind of the, the core beliefs of classical Reformedism. Now, some of you, you may have grown up in a Reformed light church, like some of the Baptist churches or something like that, and you, well, yeah, I understand part of that. I remember hearing phrases like, um, you know, sinner saved by grace and that kind of thing, even though we still sin in thought, word, and deed. But I don't necessarily subscribe to that God's already elected everything. And so that's okay, too. Uh, but this is just what the general, typical, reformed person would say. Let's skip to, let's look at Romans chapter 9. So in Romans chapter 9 is a verse that is one of the, the key or go-to evidences 
for this viewpoint um, circulating around the idea of election. And, and it says this, Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had, anything or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so this is interesting. It kind of, when you look at it at face value, it says, well, yeah, I guess before they were born, they didn't really weren't able to do anything or decide anything for themselves. And God had already decided in advance who he was going to love and who he was going to hate. Well, that word hate, when we look at this, Esau is the only person that we read of in scripture that God ever actually hated. And what is the, what is the central message of all of the Bible? is ultimately the picture of Jesus on the cross and sacrificial love. So when we see something that seems to directly oppose what that is, it deserves a closer look. When we look at this, Paul is actually referencing all kinds of stuff about the Old Testament. So let's go back to the source. Um, Malachi chapter 1 says this in verse 2. God is talking to the nation of Israel. Okay, let's add a little more context here. So... First of all, who are Jacob and Esau? They are the sons, the twin sons of Rebekah and Isaac. So Rebekah, wife of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Father Abraham, who had many sons, and I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm. Um, <laughs> Father Abraham being the original Jew, the one that was told by God when he was like 100 years old that his descendants were going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then his son Isaac is the same one that Abraham had stood over with the knife ready to sacrifice at the command of God when the atoning sacrifice of the ram came in and took its place. An Old Testament picture of Jesus. You know that Jesus is all over the Old Testament? Not necessarily by name, but you sure see him. Okay, so this is that Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, even though he was technically the younger son um, because Ishmael... But Ishmael didn't share in the blood um, lineage of Abraham. And so Isaac then became the one who was to be, by birthright, the inheriting son of the promise of God on Abraham. And so Jacob now, he's having his own two sons. And if we look at it, Esau is the one that came out first. So really, he should have been the inheriting son, the eldest son. He should have been the one that was, became the fulfillment of the promise of God. Now... When we look at the actual story that's told in Romans 9, again, it's quoting Genesis chapter 25. And when we look in Genesis 25, we see almost the same phrase other than it says, Rebecca, there are two nations in your womb. There are two nations in your womb, two peoples. And, and so from the beginning, before, this, before they were ever born, God was already identifying now that when you see Jacob and Esau now for the rest of Scripture, sometimes it's talking about individuals. Most of the time, it's talking about entire nations or people groups. Well, this makes it even more confusing because if, if God then hated Esau, he didn't only hate one individual person, he must have hated an entire people group. And how does that look in contrast with the picture of Jesus on the cross? So... That was context, but now I'm trying to remember what for. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. So God is talking to the nation of Israel, okay? And in there he says, by the way, if I didn't mention it, Jacob later has a name change to be called Israel. And so when you see Jacob or Israel, they're both representative generally of a nation or God's chosen people. 
Okay, so Malachi 1, chapter 2, verse, <laughs> chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, or Israel, but Esau I have hated and have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Okay, so we need to look a little bit closer at what's actually being said here. To do that, the Old Testament was written in what language primarily? Hebrew. In Hebrew, before they had their modern script, um, they used, in ancient Hebrew, used pictographs, similar to like uh, what Egyptians used in hieroglyphics. And the idea is that different words are represented by different pictures that are put together to mean multiple things. Okay, and so when we look at this word hate that appears, um, it represents two different images. And they are the thorn. Next. Yeah. So they are the thorn and the seed. Thorn, isn't it interesting that the actual Hebrew word for thorn is sin, which is the same place where we get our word and understanding of sin because it is something that hurts our flesh. None means seed, which also means um, son or heir. And so when you read it very literally, you would, you, you would say, well, sane, the word for hate literally means sin son or the sinning son. Well, that, that's a different connotation than what Webster tells us about hate. It doesn't show at all that God actually despised. But we do see also we know that God cannot be where sin is. Okay, back to that picture. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from other people, leads to isolation. Holiness is set apartness to be used by God. And so when we look at the actual word that's being used, it's less about, well, God despised someone, but that he was, but that, well, Back in Genesis, when we read the, the whole story in verse 25, we see that Esau was supposed to be the heir son to the birthright. Jacob cheated him out of it for a bowl of soup, right? <laughs> and some bread. Um, and then, but at the end of it, it, leads, it, the last line in there says that Esau despised his birthright. He despised God's original plan. And so, anyway, so it brings a different context as to what that hate that looked like, and we'll talk, to, talk about in a few minutes, if we get to it, um, about what it means to be drawn by God and whom he draws. Election. As we read in the Old Testament then, election, we've got to ask a question, is it about salvation or vocation? Because when we look at an entire people group being designated to one thing or the other, um, and we look at it. Greg Boyd says this, to underscore God's sovereign prerogative, Paul emphasized the arbitrary way God brought about a chosen people through Isaac and Jacob, whose mission was to serve God and the world by being a nation of priests and a light to all the nations. They were to be the means by which all the nations of the world would be blessed by hearing about the one true God. And so their election as a nation was always primarily about service, not individual salvation. Okay, so again, when we look at the original elect, we're looking at Israel and the descendants of Israel. Um, it's interesting that we also see throughout Scripture, both old and new, this, this picture of a remnant of Israel. And something changes to where all of the elect are not necessarily who is saved. And Paul reaffirms this, actually, back in Romans chapter 11. 
Now, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are basically written as a paragraph, okay? So they are within the same realm of context. Boy, you guys, you're doing great. We're going to get there. <laughs> so, they're, so it's the same context that we're reading in there. And so it may sound that Paul has changed what he's talking about, but he's, when we read verse 11, it still implicates how we should have read chapter 9. So in Romans chapter 11, Paul, first he self-identifies himself as an Israelite says, I was part of that chosen seed. Um, he says, and then in verse 14, he actually says that he hopes to arouse his own people, the other Israelites, other elect, and then says, or um, in order to save some of them. So Paul has this idea that not all who are elect are saved, and we must be talking about something different. And then in the same passage, we see Gentiles who are non-elect that are being saved. So it boils down to the question then, who is predestined to salvation? To that, we're going to go back to the book of life. So back to Revelation, again, um, chapter 20. And just to reiterate, verse 15, anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the guest list, if your name is not on the guest list. All right. So to talk about the book of life, we're going to jump back to the first time we see it pop up, um, which is in Exodus chapter 32. And it says, the next day, so the next day, this is the day after the golden calf incident, where Moses was chilling up on the mountain with God, and while he's gone, everyone decides, well, we got better ideas. We're going to make our own God. So they gathered up all their jewelry, melted it down, and made a golden calf. Moses comes back the next day, and he said to, his, to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Blot me out is a Hebrew way of saying erase. Erase my name. And by the way, isn't it striking that Moses, who's thought to be possibly the most humble man that ever lived, but that Moses is willing to sacrifice his entire eternity for the sake of an idolatrous, disbelieving people. Is that not a picture of Jesus? Man. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out or erase from my book. Okay, so first, what was their sin? Their sin was not making a funny-looking cow. Their sin, don't have a cow, man. Their sin was unbelief, okay? In fact, Hebrews 3 reaffirms this. It says the whole reason the Israels never entered the promised land was because of their unbelief. And in fact, unbelief is the only way that anyone is ever lost. I would argue that most sins stem from this fundamental idea that we don't trust God, truly. And so here's a whole bunch of people that are going to be eventually lost because of their unbelief, and yet right now, their names are apparently written in the book. So just in case you think this might be a fluke, let's look at another example. Skip ahead to Psalm chapter 69. David is talking here, and, and he is just crying out to God because there's these super bad evil dudes that are like after him, you know? And so David is pleading with God, and in verse 27, we read that, um, charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Well, 
here then, apparently it says that both the evil and righteous are listed side by side in the book. So according to what we've read so far then in the Old Testament, apparently everyone is written in the book of life, so what's the whole point of it? All right, let's look in the New Testament, see what this has to say about it. We're going to jump back to Revelation chapter 3. Um, St. Augustine once said this, I believe, that talking about the Old and the New Testament, that the New is in the Old contained and the Old is in the New explained. And dispensationalism is this idea that somehow the New Testament and the Old Testament stand independently and people usually subscribe to the apparent God that they see in the New Testament and say the Old Testament is the Old Covenant and it's irrelevant to my life. Well, when we look at when we look at Scripture honestly, though, we find that it is incredibly synonymous throughout the book when we actually read the context and understand what's happening. So, Revelation chapter 3, verse 5 says, The one who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. And so there's someone that's called an overcomer, and whoever is the overcomer, their name gets to stay on the guest list. Okay, so who is an overcomer? Well, who is writing the book of Revelation? Again, it's the Apostle John. Well, the Apostle John happens to use this term, overcomer or overcome, the one who overcomes, throughout a lot of his writings. So let's look at another example of that. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So to John, the one who overcomes is the picture of a believer. The overcomer is the one who lives and dies in belief. So when we read that back into Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, the one who overcomes then is the one whose name is not blotted out or erased. They're the ones who stays on the guest list. Now, I wish I had time to go into more because, <laughs> again, just the book of life we could talk about for weeks and weeks and weeks, okay? Just as we could have talked about context for weeks. Um, but we need to get beyond Ephesians verse 5. Um, so here is then a biblical theology of the book of life. And I hope this, maybe for some, this is a starting point of research or discussion. Um, but here is fundamentally what we get from, from the actual scripture. The names of both believers and unbelievers were written in the book of life before the foundations of the earth. Um, why? <laughs> okay, well first, we don't see any present or future tense of anything happening in the book of life other than names being removed or blotted out. So then we have to assume that they were already in there. Why would they already be in there? Well, what was the original intention? What was the original design for humanity? Was the picture of the garden, right? The garden where God wanted all of us to live with him in perfect harmony forever. Of course, our names were in from the foundations of the earth. Number two, those who die in unbelief will have their names blotted out or erased after, their die, after they die. Okay, this is now where Hebrews 9.27 makes sense, that it is for man to die once and after that to face judgment. Okay, so judgment happens after we die, and the only way to have your name blotted out is to what? Die in unbelief. All right, 
So number three, then, we have to assume that because of this, no one was predestined to damnation, but rather that everyone was predestined to salvation because God has already written their names in the book. So this doesn't mean that all will be saved. But from the beginning, we were all in. You can choose to walk away if you really, really want. If you really don't want to be with God, you can choose to walk away. Um, as the band comes, let's reread now Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, in light of this reality. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Some translations there say children, but I love the word sonship because it implies you are an inheriting heir to the promise of God. Both women and men, you are inheriting heirs to that promise through Jesus Christ. So here's, here's, here's what it comes down to. And again, I feel like it's all been way oversimplified this morning for the sake of time, but, the, but basically God chose you God predestined you, he loves you, and he has an incredible purpose for you. Yes. Amen. I invite, if you're able, would you stand? I want to read, scoot ahead just a little bit in, in Ephesians 1, and I want to read this section, verses 17 through 21, as kind of a benediction over us, and then we're going to sing, and then I'm going to wrap us up, and you can get to Cracker Barrel or wherever you got on your lunch radar today. All right. Ephesians 1, chapter, oh, Ephesians 1, verse 17 says this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. What is that power? Well, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his Amen. right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present, but also in the one to come. You were made to thrive. The same power that conquered the grave lives in you if you choose to believe. Amen. Let's sing this song together here. Let's sing this bridge. I wonder this morning if anybody is missing that power from your life. Does anybody feel stuck? And this morning, maybe God is drawing you. As Curtis said the last couple of weeks, no one comes to the Father unless Jesus first draws them. And then Jesus also said elsewhere that should I be lifted up on that cross, which he was, that he would draw all men, all people to himself. Does he ever stop drawing? When we look at Pharaoh and Exodus, I can't help but wonder if maybe at some point, because God's sovereign will will still be accomplished, and he wants to use you for that purpose. But as he draws, if you continue to reject, and he draws, and you reject, and he draws, and you reject, at some point, if you really want nothing to do with God, he's going to say, okay, you can have your way. 
For Esau, he despised his birthright. He despised that inheritance. And so this morning, if you sense that God is calling you, drawing you, and maybe, maybe it's to accept him as your Lord and Savior for the first time. Maybe you feel that he's drawing you to repent of your sin and find healing. Remembering that sin ultimately stems from that core issue of not trusting God. Or maybe you just sense that he's drawing you deeper and deeper into a radical trust relationship with him. This morning, I'm going to pray. And as we pray, we can pray confidently knowing that he is for you and that he wants the best for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you this morning that you are the one who draws. Thank you that you accomplished for us on that cross, which we can never accomplish for ourselves. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And though we were once objects of wrath, now through salvation, through our accepting of that inheritance, we are now your beloved children. And so we no longer identify as sinners who still sin and thought word indeed every day, but rather that we have been raised with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this morning, whatever you're speaking to, to hearts in here, I thank you that you are the God who draws. So would you lead us this week in grace and in peace? We are your church. We're not always, not always a beautiful bride. Sometimes the church looks like an ugly bride. <laughs> but God, thank you that you love the church and it is still your plan for the world. So God, would you send us out now to be the church on fire, not only surviving, but learning how to thrive where you have placed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you want to pray, the altars are open. Otherwise, you are dismissed. Go in the grace and peace of our God. Amen. You are dismissed.